Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. Yes, and um, welcome to this uh, September 12th show. Um, For the second week in a row, Tim uh, Shiflett is under the weather. Uh, All of our goodwill for his speedy recovery goes out to him. Hopefully, Tim will... Uh, make it back by next week, um, and you know for Tim to miss that, that um, he is definitely under the weather, and so we're just all thinking of Tim. Um, but tonight, in about 10 minutes, uh, from Wisconsin joining us again, uh, Dr. Anthony Shigoski is going to um, tell us all about Wisconsin politics, one of the political science professors up there at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse, an expert that they have on TV locally when you know there's political issues going on so we're just so glad to have anthony with us um tim i'm sorry uh, Catherine. before we get started um if you want to on air say your good wishes to tim uh, be my guest yes i'm so sorry that he's not feeling well and i hope he's on the mend very soon um as as you said tim's got to be really under the weather to miss kudzu vine so uh, we miss you, Tim, but we wish you all the best. Yes, he does text with us, and that's why I know he wanted to talk about our first topic because I think he has stronger feelings. I know that I do, and I do have strong feelings about our first topic, but he has stronger ones than I do, and he may have stronger ones than you do. And um, late in the week, President Biden uh, addressed the nation around 5 o'clock, I want to say maybe on a Thursday, um, you know, stating, stating that federal workers – healthcare workers, and there would be some other selected groups, he was going to mandate um, the vaccine. It was about 100, 100 million Americans and all would be covered by this to continue, uh, you know, to move the vaccination rate along. I mean, there's so much information out there, how we were leading the world, and now we're last among G7 countries. We have lost all momentum, and the suffering has been very apparent in two places, and that's our hospitals and our obituary pages. And that is not two places that you want to be able to see um, the effects of what's going on with this next strain, the Delta variant of COVID-19. Catherine? It's just, uh, I, I mean, I'm so proud of the president for figuring out a way to do this. Uh, I think it was kind of brilliant to bring OSHA into the um, picture, into the, you know, calculation. Um, Obviously, as we expected, there's a lot of pushback, including from our governor here in Georgia and a lot of other uh, governors, mostly in, I mean, specifically in red states. Um, But we have to do something. And uh, I think this is a, a good step in the, in, to address the problem, um, I, I think it's um, sort of embarrassing to me for the United States to be behind in something so important and something that we have complete, you know, we have access to this vaccination. We have, you know, systems set up so that everyone can get it. Um, I mean, there aren't even the long lines that there were when we all first started getting them, though I didn't have to wait in line, but um, I know a lot of people did. Um, but I just, I, I, I am forever mystified by this resistance at such a large scale. Now I can understand some resistance, whether it's for religious reasons or, um, if, you know, have their whatever, you know, reasons, but this is so, so, it's such a large scale. It's very, it's just very disappointing to me. I'm very disappointed in our, 
and so many of my fellow citizens over this. Yeah, it is some kind of like badge of honor to show that you're this true, you know, conservative patriot that you won't, you know, uh, take the vaccine and all the misinformation with the microchips and the alternative remedies that get touted um, and every rabbit hole that can be gone down when it's so straightforward. And I do think it's very interesting just this past week, a lot's come out like, you know, during the American Revolution, George Washington mandated the smallpox vaccine. Calvin Coolidge mandated vaccines in 1925. This is not an unprecedented step. It's unfortunate that it had to come to this because if, you know, all but a small percentage of people didn't get it, you would come far closer to reaching, you know, this herd immunity we hear so much about. Um, but, but we're just – it's like some people want to take us there. They want to take us through there, the brutal route um, that leads to so much pain and suffering. Um, and so we've just gotten there. I think another step that also needs to happen, and Delta's done this, and I think they ought to do it a lot of other places, is just like with smoking and other um, choices that you might make with your health, if those choices cost in insurance to rise, then they ought to take the insurance rates, be it the copays, the um, you know your you know your monthly rate. Um, I guess your monthly premium, and then raise that up for not being vaccinated. This is what it's probably costing the healthcare system per capita. You know, they have some kind of actuary table I don't understand. Um, it's, it's above my pay grade in math and insurance knowledge. Um, but you increase it, and you could even do a double where you do some increase and some decrease for people that have vaccinated to, get, you know, do a little carrot with a little stick. I think eventually you would get more people to then get vaccinated, and it wouldn't be where, oh, I got forced. It'd be, oh, I, it became an economic decision. And so the choice was in your hand. You just were going to get punished in the pocketbook for your choice because all of us are getting punished because our health care system is just not well right now. Catherine, what's your thoughts on people, you know, other companies or government insurance um, following – um, Delta's lead. I think that's a good solution um, or a good, I don't know if it's a solution, a good approach. Um, I, I'm not sure how much it's solved because um, I, I would be interested to see how many people are affected by a decision like that. Um, how many people who are choosing not to get vaccination vaccinated are affected by that i mean i i just i don't know i don't know if there's a large percentage that are retired or uh working for small businesses that may not be uh implicated and may not be able to do something like that so um but if it's a if it takes us a few steps ahead then i'm all for it um i i'm just like I said, I'm just mystified by it. Uh, but the uh, the the other really uh, important part of this is this lack of interest in protecting our children, because that's really where the impact comes. Because you know, children under 12 can't be vaccinated. Um, so there's so, so much risk for children under 12, and it seems like I haven't read up in the last couple of days, but the last time I was looking at headlines and reading that there was some concern that children are also um, more, more likely to spread the virus. So it's a double whammy, right? They can get it, but then they can also spread it. So I think it's just yeah. kind of um, shocking that, there's this large swath of people who aren't interested in protecting the children of our country. Yeah. And you're starting to see, you know, more children, um, you know, that are under the age of 12 that are unfortunately passing away, which is, you know, just a few children under 12 <laughs> passing away is real shock to the system. Um, well, we're going to change years here. Although, you know, Dr. Shabrowski's welcome to talk about the 
uh, situation in Wisconsin as well. But we want to welcome back to the Kudzu Vine for the second time, Dr. Anthony Shavosky. Um, Shavosky, welcome, Dr. Shavosky. Well, thanks so much for having me. Always great to talk with you guys. Yes. Well, I mean, let's start there since we kind of, you're coming on a little earlier. Thank you for doing that. Uh, you know, I know in Wisconsin there was one time where that was a state where there was a real uptick. Um, has it gotten better, or is it like we are seeing in the Sun Belt where uh, we're just going through the pain and suffering? You know, I think that we are entering or are in the middle of a pretty tough stretch here in Wisconsin when it comes to COVID. Hopefully we're kind of hitting the peak or getting into the back end of this surge in cases. But all throughout this response to COVID in Wisconsin, you've had these crazy changes of direction, these crazy zigzags, and these mixed messages from state government. Because you have Tony Evers, who's a, a Democrat who has been doing things that have been pretty typical of Democratic governors across the country, you know, trying to push vaccines, putting certain requirements in place when it comes to vaccines, when it comes to masking. And then you have a Republican-controlled legislature that's been extremely hostile to, you know, those sorts of requirements. A great example currently is in the University of Wisconsin campuses, there are threats right now from the state legislature to to sue the University of Wisconsin system for requiring masks in the classroom. And right now it looks like they're going to back off because we have former Republican Governor Tommy Thompson as the president of the University of Wisconsin system, and he kind of has the clout to get Republican legislators to back off. But that was still a very real threat for a while. And and so, you know, we're, 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 we've just had this real environment of uncertainty throughout the entire pandemic, whether it's been with the kind of mitigation efforts at the start of the pandemic, whether it's been with masking requirements, whether it's been with vaccines. So, you know, I, I don't know that we've been hit as hard as some southern states, but we've been hit hard. And you have to consider, I think, all of the political turmoil and the political uncertainty as not really helping matters here in Wisconsin. And and certainly we're not unique in that situation, but, you know, if there's one state that just just seems to have constant political turmoil, it does seem to be Wisconsin in many respects. Yes. Tommy Thompson. um, Now, when the fur trappers first settled Wisconsin, was Tommy Thompson one of the ones that came in, or was he already there? I mean, that guy's been around for Wisconsin politics for forever. <laughs> Tommy Thompson, you know, he's – he's I, I got to tell you all, uh, he is about 80, 80 years old, and he's still sharp as a tack. He's currently leading the University of Wisconsin system. And I got to say, like, like I said, it's been really key to have a, a Republican – you know, who who is someone who the Republicans in Wisconsin will listen to. And we know that the Republicans in the Wisconsin state legislature will not listen to the governor and, in fact, will be motivated to do sort of the opposite of whatever the governor says. But, yeah, you, sort of out of nowhere, Tommy Thompson sort of shows up and is leading the state's university system through – this situation and and i gotta say it's it's been a real success to have tommy thompson in such an influential position at point someone who yeah sure is he's he's most certainly a conservative but he's very much a pragmatist and you know he 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 wants the state legislature to stay in its lane so to speak i mean the state legislature in wisconsin has been extremely aggressive in terms of trying to you know, challenge the powers of various other entities in government, whether that's challenging the power of the governor, whether that's trying to wage battles in the courts, whether that's trying to grab, you know, sort of assert power over the university system. And, and so it's kind of, you know, you have someone in, in Tommy Thompson who has the clout to, to fight back against that. And, you know, that's, that's sort of the one thing that's been, <laughs> uh, that's been sort of saving me and others and other of my colleagues from 
a, a truly chaotic situation on our campuses. So right now on our campuses here in, in Wisconsin, we, we do not have a vaccine requirement, but, but we can require masks. And, and so that seems to be relatively certain, seems to be something that we can continue doing for the time being at least. And, you know, I'm sure in a month there'll be something completely different. Uh, this, the politics in this state are, are so unpredictable and so wild, but, but, but for now it seems that we're, you know, we've got, we've got the legislature sort of backing off for, for right now. Yes. And it's kind of, it's interesting how, Oh, go ahead, Catherine. I was just wondering, you know, here in Georgia, we had a um, professor who just basically walked out of a lecture because um, he asked a student to wear a mask properly and the student just flat out refused. And um, he just felt like it was too risky. Have you had any situations like that in Wisconsin where you uh, have some kind of mask mandate for a class, but, but there's resistance from the students? Yeah, I, I think the mask mandates have been a matter of some controversy here, and it's really in the rural districts. There was a really interesting point by a political scientist uh, named Will Wilkinson recently, who he, he observed that rural areas around the country are kind of getting to be similar to one another. You know, it doesn't matter if it's rural Midwest. It doesn't matter if it's rural Northeast. It doesn't matter if it's rural South. You know, they're all kind of getting to be similar. And so just like in in many rural parts in the South, you know, you have this resistance to mask uh, mandates in the schools. You see the very same thing here up in the Midwest when it comes to mask orders in the schools, when it comes to mask requirements in the schools. Meanwhile, you see urban areas going right ahead with whatever mitigation efforts they're pursuing and really not encountering much resistance and not encountering much controversy. So, uh, you know, I, I think as I've sort of continued to be an observer of Wisconsin politics, one thing I've noticed is that the rural areas really remind me a lot of the rural areas in North Carolina when I lived there. And the urban areas here in Wisconsin really remind me a lot of the urban areas when I lived in North Carolina. So it seems like there's this sort of coming, there's, there's this phenomenon that I mentioned, this political scientist named Will Wilkinson mentioned, where, where rural areas around the country are, are more and more sharing sort of a common political and cultural thread, while the urban areas around the country are more and more sharing a, a common thread. And, and, you know, you don't see kind of that sharp north-south cultural distinction as much anymore. It's something I've definitely noticed having done my doctoral work in North Carolina and now being a professor here in Wisconsin. That's very interesting. Thank you for that. Go ahead, David. You had a question. Oh, well, I was going to just kind of add on it. You were talking about Tommy Thompson, Republican, taking over um, the university system. I know Mitch Daniels, after he served as governor, in uh, Indiana, took over Purdue and, and did a good government job. I mean, a job that pulled from both sides of the aisle would like it. And it's interesting when you put Republicans in those kind of positions with a specific mission, even if it is a government-based mission, that they're, they're different kinds of leaders. Now, I do think there are limits. I don't think one day we'll go, man, we just never thought Lauren Boebert would that, do that kind of work at the <laughs> University of Colorado. But, you know... It's just an interesting phenomenon. Well, you know, let's get into the politics. We had John to really talk about politics, so let's talk about this U.S. Senate race. I think it is one of maybe the top two to three um, Senate races in the country in 2022. But the first thing that has to be decided is will Ron Johnson seek reelection or will he stick to his promise of two terms? Yeah, you know, everyone's trying to read the tea leaves. And and frankly, I don't think people here in Wisconsin, even the savviest observers of of politics here in Wisconsin, I don't think even they have a clear read on what Ron Johnson is going to do. If you put a gun to my head and made me guess right now, I would guess that he would run. But you also have sort of this shadow campaign on the Republican side where you have these different players in Republican politics who are positioning themselves 
in the event that Ron Johnson doesn't run. So you have some people who have run for office before who are sort of kind of running a campaign, but not really, but they're positioning themselves in case Ron Johnson doesn't run. You have people in the uh, in the congressional delegation, members of the House of Representatives from Wisconsin, who will probably jump in if Ron Johnson doesn't run. Mike Gallagher, the Republican representative from the Green Bay area, definitely comes to mind in that list. So right now, we still don't know what Ron Johnson is going to do. And, you know, here in the Midwest, we're known for being passive-aggressive uh, and you're starting to see some passive-aggressive comments made by Republicans towards Ron Johnson, you know, not outright calling him out for not making a decision, but sort of saying, oh, gee, wouldn't it be nice if Ron Johnson would kind of make up his mind at this point? Uh, so I think you're seeing some frustration on the Republican side, but, but we do know that Ron Johnson has just absolute loyalty among the Republican base. So I don't think Ron Johnson is going to be pushed around easily by anyone in the Republican Party. The base just loves him. So, you know, he's going to make his decision on his timetable. Meanwhile, you've got the Democratic Party sort of assuming that Ron Johnson is going to be the opponent, but they've also got to be nimble because he may well not be the opponent. So you've got this like Vicky said, I mean, you've got this just fascinating race where the Democrats do have a real opportunity to pick this seat up, but there are so many domino, dominoes yet to tumble. I mean, so many shoes yet to drop here. Like, what does Ron Johnson run or not? Who is the Democratic Party's nominee? What's the political environment like in 2022? So a, a lot yet to be determined, but no doubt that this is one of the most interesting races that I can remember in a, in Wisconsin. And there's been no shortage of interesting races in Wisconsin. And this is going to be just yet another dramatic and wild and weird campaign here, I think. Well, let me ask you, uh, what, do you think Ron Johnson is actually the Republican strongest candidate, or are a lot of his controversial statements something that would cost him with, you know, the swing voters or at least drive out more Democratic voters in a 2022 race. You know, that is one of the funniest and and one of the many weird issues in this campaign, I think, because normally the incumbent would quite obviously be the strongest candidate for a political party just by virtue of being the incumbent. But I think the Democrats here would very much prefer if Ron Johnson were to run for re-election. And that is because his polarizing nature, you know, could really turn off some voters and his polarizing nature could help Democrats overcome some of the headwinds that they might encounter in the 2022 midterm election. I mean, we know that midterm elections often are not friendly to the party of the president. But when you have a uniquely polarizing candidate and, and, a, and someone who is really unlike anyone else in the United States Senate, you know, you, you wonder if the national environment really makes that much of a difference when you're dealing with that kind of a candidate, when you're dealing with such a unique candidate. So it's my opinion that, in fact, the Democrats probably would have the best chance if Ron Johnson runs for reelection. Now, that's with the caveat that Ron Johnson is beloved among the Republican base here in Wisconsin. I mean, the Republican base here in Wisconsin adores Ron Johnson because he gives them sort of a, a steady diet of talking points and a steady diet of material that is really pleasing to the Republican base. But on the other hand, you have an equally motivated Democratic side, and you might have some swing voters in the middle who just say, you know, we got to move on from someone who is who is so controversial. You know, maybe, maybe you know, maybe we just got to find someone new, someone more down the middle for the job. So I I think honestly, like I, I if you have someone like Mike Gallagher. Uh, the the Green Bay area congressman jump in the race. I think he'd win pretty easily. 
um, because he's a very conventional and non-controversial Republican. If you had some other people and some other key players within the Republican Party here jump in the race, they probably would win by a couple points. But, I mean, with Ron Johnson, it's, it's, it's a coin toss. And it could very much go either way. And I think that the Democrats would be wise to, in fact, hope that he runs. Like I said, one of the one of the truly odd facts of this election that the incumbent, uh, if he runs for re-election, would actually be better for the opposing party as opposed to if you get a, a fresh candidate and it's an open seat election. So, so I, I actually think the Democrats would, would, would not mind one bit if Ron Johnson ends up running for re-election. Yeah, and I think that the fact that so many Democratic candidates have announced um, some which are actually giving up, you know, statewide offices uh, shows that they, you know, think that Ron Johnson's going to run and not be replaced by a superior candidate. Well, um, Anthony, the last time you were on the show, uh, Alex Lassaray had just gotten in the race. Um, he was instrumental in building the new Milwaukee arena at the time. I saw that on his uh, intro video. Since then, the Milwaukee Bucks have won the NBA championship. Probably not because of him. Uh, the center probably is a little more important, the great freak. Uh, probably the coach and the general manager more important, all that. But probably the best thing that could have happened to his campaign is the Milwaukee Bucks indeed win the NBA Finals. So they've done that, and the shine is still on. They're the defending champions. They may not be that when um, the you know votes are cast in the primary. Did that is that going to carry him further along, or is he at a high water mark and it's just still not enough? You know, you talk to people who have their ear to the ground. You talk to people who are in the know, and they take him seriously, Alex Lassery. They take him seriously because of his ability to to self fund a campaign and his ability to perhaps overwhelm his opponents with the amount of money that he could put into the race. We know that money has a fairly substantial effect on the outcome of party nominations because oftentimes it's just a battle to get your name in front of the voters. Oftentimes it's just a battle to get your name and your platform out there, and money happens to be quite helpful for those purposes. So, yeah, I think Alex Lazary is someone to be taken seriously, but – when you talk to people, I think that they have their eye on Mandela Barnes. Mandela Barnes is, you know, a very interesting figure here in Wisconsin. He's the lieutenant governor. He's, he's, a, the, he's a, a black statewide office holder in an overwhelmingly white state. Uh, he's definitely left of center. He's, he's definitely kind of on the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He's from Milwaukee originally. And he seems to have the best name recognition and the most support among the activist base in the Republican Party. I think, uh, you know, there's going to be some questions asked about if he's the kind of person who can win in a general election. Of course, he can then point to the fact that he won a general election as the running mate of the governor in 2018. Um, but certainly the playbook, if you're the Republicans and you're running against Lieutenant Governor Barnes is to portray him as, you know, a, a liberal creature of Milwaukee politics. And, and that tends to be an effective strategy when you're, when you're trying to appeal to voters outside of the Madison and the Milwaukee areas. But, but I do think Alex Lassery is someone to be taken seriously, again, because of the amount of resources and the amount of finances he can bring to bear. But, but people, I think right now do seem to believe that Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes is a favorite, not an overwhelming favorite, not someone who is going to sort of vanquish the field right now before the race even really gets started, but someone who enters sort of the the campaign with a, a noticeable, even if not overwhelming, advantage over the rest of the field. Yeah, well, you've taken us into one of who I would call the two front runners for the Democratic nomination, Mandela Barnes. The other one, your other statewide office holder, uh, state treasurer, Sarah Godlewski. Um, how is her campaign going? 
I think her campaign's been a bit of a disappointment so far. She hasn't really been able to develop the kind of buzz that Mandela Barnes has been able to develop, nor does she have the type of resources that Alex Lazary has. So I think that there's been, you know, a, a, there there was a sense that, you know, that Godlewski, the state treasurer, could be a very compelling candidate, the type of candidate who can win the suburbs, the type of candidate who can win voters outside of the the democratic strongholds of Milwaukee and Madison, the type of voter the type of candidate who can win sort of the pivotal voters. But her campaign has really not taken off. Of course, it still could. And you know, you don't have anyone in the field who is a prohibitive favorite, like I like I mentioned. And so I, I, that to me that just adds to the overall intrigue of of this race because you just have such incredible drama on both sides of the equation. I mean, you have Ron Johnson on the Republican side who it seemingly every day is grabbing national headlines and we don't know what he's going to do. And there, there's sort of a shadow campaign on the Republican side in case he doesn't run, but, you know, he, he may well run. And if he does run, then it's going to be it's just an absolute doozy of a campaign. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, you have a lot of interest in this race. You know, as a political scientist, one way that I can learn a lot about a campaign is who runs and how many people run. And it's very telling that you have some top recruits on the Democratic side jumping in to run against Ron Johnson, potentially. And you have just a whole lot of Democrats jumping into the race to run against Ron Johnson. So that tells you something important about this campaign and how the Democrats understand this campaign against Ron Johnson, the quality and the quantity of the candidates who have jumped into the race. But like I said, you just got real intriguing storylines on on both sides, like with Ron Johnson not saying if he's going to run, saying that he doesn't feel any pressure to make a decision soon, not even really laying out a timetable for when he's going to make a decision Plus, on the Democratic side, you've got a real competitive primary here. You've got a real competitive nomination process setting up. And so, uh, you know, I, I might be a little biased here, but I, I do think at the end of the day, this is going to be the most interesting Senate race to watch in the country in the 2022 cycle. Yes, well, let's continue to go through a little bit of this Democratic field. Um, I read, I guess, just in the past week, uh, Milwaukee Alderwoman, Shantia Lewis, I mean, she looks like she's in that upper half of the candidates because we got about eight running for the nomination. Um, but she mm-hmm. had some uh, legal issues. Uh, tell us more about that and how that seems to impact her campaign. That's right. I mean, you have, I think, sort of a, a, a question about if a, women, a, a woman of color would emerge in this field. And that it seemed to be something that people were wondering about. You know, if the Democratic Party and its nomination, its pool of candidates is going to be representative of the party as a whole, we know how just front and center women of color are in the Democratic Party's electorate, in the activist base of the Democratic Party. So, so that had been sort of a question in political circles here. In this case, you do have a candidate who is facing real legal issues. And and so I have my doubts about her viability as a candidate, especially when you have some really well-funded and some really well-known candidates at the top of the field. Again, you know, this is – I'm not certainly going to make any firm predictions about where this race is headed uh, because I, I don't see a standout favorite. But – you know, the, the, have, having such serious legal issues is, I think, a major setback in her campaign. Yeah, well, let me ask you about one other candidate, and then I'll let you open up anybody else that I'm forgetting. But, um, you know, when you look at websites, because if you're several hundred miles away, um, other than maybe <laughs> disclosure reports, it kind of gives you an idea if someone at least has some polish and is serious about it. Uh, Dr. Jillian uh, Bettino, I mean, her website looks, you know, legit. I mean, she looks like a real candidate based on that. Um, is she kind of the fifth candidate, or is it better than that for her? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that you have d- distinct 
tiers of candidates in this race. And, and as we've been talking about, I think it is very fair to say that the tier one candidates are Mandela Barnes, Sarah Godlewski, and Alex Lassery in the competition for the Democratic nomination in this Wisconsin Senate race. Uh, Julian Bettino, I, I would say, is very much in that second tier of, of candidates. And I, you know, I, I kind of view this second tier of candidates as, you know, this is sort of the question there is who can who can become a tier one candidate out of that second tier, and at this point I don't know. I would actually point to some other candidates in the field. Uh, for example, uh, Tom Nelson is someone who is a, a county executive and is known as just a real sort of workhorse on the campaign trail. I think if someone could just sort of grind his way up from the second tier of candidates into the first tier of candidates, it might well be him. But I think that right now it kind of actually reminds me of the, the presidential race where, you know, on the Republican side in 2016 and the Democratic side last time, you'd have so many candidates that you'd have like a tier one debate and then the undercard debate. You know, you'd have you'd have the real contenders debating and then you'd have sort of the the everyone else's debating. And the race is very much setting up that same way here in Wisconsin, just because of the number of candidates in the field here. With this number of candidates in the field, I, I think there's room for maybe three or four candidates in that top tier of candidates. We got three in there right now, Mandela Barnes, Sarah Godlewski, and Alex Lassery. Yeah, could someone else jump up in there? Absolutely. I don't know who that would be right now. Of course, there's a lot of time to go, and 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 we don't really know a lot about the campaign strategies of these candidates quite yet. Uh, they haven't really had to engage with each other. They haven't had any debates. We haven't had any attacks flying back and forth among this field. So once the campaign really starts to settle in, I think it'll be a lot clearer which of those sort of lesser-known candidates can make the jump into the first tier. Yes, well, one final question on this, and this is kind of global. Um, who hurts who? Like if one person, you know, falters in that top four or five candidates, who does it help? Who is wishing who would drop out? That kind of thing. I think Sarah Godlewski is the second choice of a lot of Mandela Barnes supporters. I think you have a lot of people in the Democratic Party who have really gotten to like Mandela Barnes. They like his youthfulness. They like the energy that he brings. They like sort of the progressive mindset that he brings. So there's a lot of people in the Democratic Party who really, really have gotten to like Mandela Barnes while he's been serving as lieutenant governor of Wisconsin. And from the moment that he was elected lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, it really was not a question of if he would make a run for higher office, but when he would make a run for higher office. You also have a lot of Democrats in Wisconsin who have really got to like Sarah Godlewski, the state treasurer. So if Mandela Barnes falters and he has faced some negative press, he has, you know, some potential vulnerabilities as a candidate. I do think Sarah Godlewski would benefit, uh, and I think that, you know, it, it wouldn't shock me one bit. Uh, I mean, as, as unpredictable as this field is, you know, it wouldn't shock me one bit if Ron Johnson, A, if Ron Johnson runs, and B, if his Democratic opponent is either Mandela Barnes or Sarah Godlewski. Uh, that scenario seems totally plausible to me. And, you know, if, if we're talking a year from now and, and it's Johnson versus Mandela Barnes or it's Johnson versus Sarah Godlewski, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if, if we're talking a year from now and, and that's what has unfolded. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, that was one of the most informative, thorough discussions we've ever had about a race in the history of Kudzu Vines. So, so kudos <laughs> to you to keep answering these questions. I'm going to pass it to Catherine for some more questions, and then if there, there's something still there, it'll come back to me. Catherine? Hey, thanks a lot. That was, that was very informative and very interesting. Um, I'm going to ask about something that uh, we don't hear enough about and because there's so many other things on our minds, but across the country, 
uh, we are facing redistricting, and uh, some states have, uh, you know, these, uh, what do you call them, uh, nonpartisan commissions, and some have, you know, very partisan, like in Georgia. How are things going with redistricting in Wisconsin? Yeah, that's a great question because the process has really gotten underway. In fact, there are already already multiple lawsuits going through Wisconsin state courts surrounding redistricting. Yeah, yeah, I know, like multiple lawsuits, and we don't even have proposed maps yet. So the lawyers are not – are not waiting around, you know, the parties are not waiting around like the, the, and believe me, this is, uh, this is just the beginning of the litigation here in Wisconsin. So if there is going to be a winner in all of this, it's the lawyers like they're going to, they're going to make out like bandits in this thing um, because this is headed for court. You know, you do have a process in Wisconsin and, and Wisconsin is particularly notable for this because it was so, I, I, the, the partisan gerrymandering in Wisconsin was, was perceived as uniquely extreme and so much so that it was the subject of the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court's case on partisan gerrymandering. Now, ultimately, the Supreme Court decided that it, that partisan gerrymandering is not a matter for federal courts, but it can still be litigated in state courts. And that's exactly what's going to happen here in Wisconsin. Because you have a process where the state legislature draws its own maps, and we have a state legislature that is dominated by Republicans, and then that maps, the, the maps that result from that process will no doubt be vetoed by the Democratic governor, and then the whole thing heads to court. Now, my sense is that when it heads to court, you're going to get kind of a status quo map getting drawn from the courts. It can't be entirely a status quo map, kind of a continuation of the current maps. Can't be 100% a continuation of the current maps because you have had some real population shifts here in Wisconsin. And they, they're really shifts here in Wisconsin that reflect the kind of shifts that we've seen all over the country. We have a lot of rural areas that are shrinking in population, and we have urban areas and suburban areas that are growing rapidly. So the maps that result from whatever messy process lies ahead of us would have to account for those trends, but I don't think they would deviate dramatically from the maps that we have right now. And ultimately, that's bad news for the Democrats because the current maps in Wisconsin really do disadvantage the Democrats. Of course, the Democrats are disadvantaged in part here because their voters are overwhelmingly concentrated in in Madison and in Milwaukee. But, you know, even above and beyond that, the maps are drawn in a way really disadvantage the Democrats. So I I, I don't think it's going to get any worse for the Democrats in redistricting. But, you know, I I don't think that this any, any court battles are going to sort of solve this problem. I mean, ultimately, the, the only way to sort of solve this problem, I think, over the long run is to get an independent redistricting commission. Of course, the only way to do that is to have it be enacted by the state legislature, the very people who benefit from being able to draw the district. So, you know, we're kind of between a rock and a hard place here. Uh, this time around, I, I do, like I said, I do think the maps will be sorted out by the courts, but, you know, that, that's sort of a temporary development in a, in a very long-term problem that, that shows no signs of going away. Yeah, the, 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 the whole idea that the legislature has to decide to have an uh, independent commission, neither party in any state is going to want to do that. They're not going to be the want to be. Nobody's going to, wants to be the ones to pass that because they they're you know losing their own power. They're they're forfeiting their own power. So um, I I uh, right now I'm angry at Republicans for the way they're handling this. But in the past I have been angry with Democrats for doing this very similar thing. So it's a very frustrating uh, situation for voters because we we feel like uh we're saying our elected officials they're selecting us and it's not a very uh it doesn't seem to be a very democratic 
um, solution to the problem. Well, that's my question. I'm going to send it back to David because I think he has some more. So thanks very much for that answer. It was very informative. Yes. Well, um, Dr. Shigoski, I wanted to ask you about your governor's race. Uh, Tony Evers, um, he's running for re-election, and um, I saw a poll out that showed he was up by about three points, but he was under 50, so it was kind of a mixed numbers, the the, the poll that I think I sent to Catherine Kim earlier this week. Um, He he does have an opponent now, maybe two opponents, um, Rebecca Cleeflish of Flesh, and John Mako, um, I actually saw, um, you know, the ex-lieutenant, the ex-lieutenant governor, and I saw her video, and I thought, she sounds like an ex-local uh, news uh, reporter. And then I saw on Politics One, local ex-TV news reporter. I was like, oh, yeah, she fits the, the bill perfectly. Uh, tell us about that governor's race. Yeah, sure. So I I would characterize Tony Evers as someone who comes into the 2022 re-election campaign as being relatively popular and as someone who has engaged in near-constant battles with the Republican legislature in in much the same way that you've seen in, in other states. Certainly Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan comes to mind as kind of a parallel to what has happened here in, in, in Wisconsin. But, but as you mentioned, you, you know, we do have someone who is a clear front runner for the Republican nomination for governor here in Wisconsin, and that's Rebecca Clayfish. Uh, Rebecca Clayfish was the lieutenant governor for Scott Walker. And, and so that is both a, a plus and a minus for her. It's a plus in the sense that it makes her the prohibitive favorite in the Republican nomination sweepstakes because she's very well known among Republicans here. She has a campaign platform that really reflects the things that animate the the base. You know, her her, her platform is all about things like critical race theory and, you know, harsher penalties for people who – uh, riot or destroy property and hiring more police. So, so she has a she has a, a a platform that really reads like a document that responds to the current animating issues of the Republican base. So, my my expectation is that Rebecca Clayfish will be the Republican nominee, and and she'll go into the general election facing Tony Evers, who has had a very interesting record here. Like I said, I mean, most of his time as governor has been characterized by these really vicious battles and nonstop battles with the Republican-controlled legislature, lots of battles that have ended up in court, battles that began even before he became governor, but certainly intensified during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, when he had like a stay-at-home order, when he had uh, mask orders and, and, and all of that stuff, you know, that really resulted in a a lot of animosity between him and the Republican-controlled legislature. Um, Now, he did surprise a lot of people by enacting, by signing the largest tax cut in state history this last month. And and that might end up being the difference in this campaign Um, because the Republicans were playing a a bit of a game of chicken with Tony Evers, the Republicans in the state legislature. They passed this enormous tax cut under the assumption that Evers would veto it and they could then use that as a campaign issue. But to their surprise and to the surprise of a lot of people, Tony Evers goes ahead and signs the tax cut. So that ends up becoming kind of like a a surprise and it ends up maybe helping him capture sort of the middle of the road in the campaign. So I expect that that'll be – quite powerful for him. The question is, as a Democrat, how much is he going to be damaged by any headwinds that he faces from the national environment, any, any uh, factors in the national environment that might be problematic for Democrats? Can he stand on his record in this state? I think that'll be really key, but I think he enters as a modest favorite for, for re-election. It's going to be a close one. I mean, statewide elections in Wisconsin are always close. But uh, I I see Governor Evers as a a modest favorite for re-election, at least at the moment. Well, let me ask you a question. 
You mentioned uh, Mandela Barnes, Lieutenant Governor uh, for with um, Tony Evers, and then Rebecca Clayfish uh, with Scott Walker. In Wisconsin, do they run as a ticket and that they choose a running mate, or does someone just run for Lieutenant Governor and they could be of the same party or different parties? Yeah, they they run separately, and so you have this really uh, yeah they run on separate tickets. Uh, so so how it works is that they run for the nomination separately, but then they're sort of combined in the general election into one ticket. So you ended up having in Mandela Barnes someone who Tony Evers w- would not have selected probably as his ideal running mate, but Barnes did win the Democratic nomination. He ends up becoming the lieutenant governor and ends up being quite a you know someone who is able to really build his profile within the Democratic Party. Uh, so yeah, it's an interesting system where you have the two candidates, the governor and the lieutenant governor, they run separately in the party nomination, but then they're sort of fused together on a ticket for the general election. And they, and they so in the general, they stand and win or lose together. Correct. They're not separate lines for the general. Okay, and that is a different system because you know I know like I think believe it's Minnesota. You know, they select the running mate, um, and then in, in you know, most of the states, I think, in the country, including most of the South, you could have a lieutenant governor that's a Democrat and a Republican that's the governor. We had that with Sonny Perdue and Mark Taylor for four years. Um, right. so, so that is an interesting system then. That may be a one-of-a-kind uh, in Wisconsin. It leads to some interesting outcomes, right, because, you know, you, you might, as a gubernatorial candidate, try to favor a lieutenant governor candidate, but you can't have your pick at the end of the day. And so, I mean, the, the, the result was rather comedic because you had two people who were just in so many ways, utter opposites. I mean, sure, they were both Democrats, but stylistically their backgrounds and you know, basically everything about them, they were just utter opposites uh, in terms of uh, just who they were as politicians, Evers, the governor and Barnes as the lieutenant governor. So it gave us lots of entertainment here in in Wisconsin state politics. You have this very low-key governor, this very – I mean, his selling point is that he's low drama, he's boring. And then you have this, like, really up-and-coming, energetic, in touch with the progressive – the young progressive energy in the Democratic Party lieutenant governor – uh, so, so they ended up making it work, um, but ultimately, you know, it, like like we've talked about, it, it's no surprise that Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes here in Wisconsin has has wanted to take that next step in his career, has built quite a following within the Democratic Party, and could very, very well end up as the Democratic opponent to Ron Johnson, and and that'll just thrust him into the national spotlight even more if he becomes sort of the Democratic Party standard bearer against Johnson next year. Yes. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting information. And I want to ask one final question. Potentially it involves Wisconsin, but involves other 49 states. You keep harking them back to the national, you know, trends. And we know that a lot of times the party in power has trouble, particularly Democrats in the first um, midterm of, of their presidency, although the rules seem to be changing and the Republicans don't seem to be, you know, moderating and, and, and you know, kind of trying to be this calm, good government party. They, they, they're really just following Trump all the way and, 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 and following those Trumpian instincts. Um, but I get the sense you think it's going to be a little bit lean Republican year. Um, is that a fair takeaway from what I'm hearing? I, I think it is, you know, and one of those seemingly laws of American politics is that the president's party tends to struggle in midterm elections. And as we've talked about, you know, in Wisconsin, there are some factors that could potentially mitigate that, you know, the the sort of uniquely polarizing and and, and controversial nature of Ron Johnson and then just the unique facts of the state politics here in terms of the gubernatorial race. But, you know, I think one thing that gives me a little bit of pause, and, and I do think that it's going to be a Republican-leaning year, 
But it is interesting, you know, we're seeing this in Wisconsin, we're seeing this everywhere, that there's this real sort of battle within the Republican Party about, you know, relitigating the 2020 election versus pivoting to 2022. And in Wisconsin, that is really playing out front and center here in the state's politics, because you have a lot of pressure on the Republican leaders here in Wisconsin in the state legislature to do an Arizona-style cyber ninja thing. I don't even know what you call it, like forensic audit or just Arizona thing, I'll call it. Uh, do what the cyber ninjas are doing. There's a lot of pressure on Republican leaders here in Wisconsin to do that. And so you have a lot of Republicans and and a lot of energy in the Republican Party to keep battling over 2020. You know, we just had a demonstration here over the last week uh, about a, a subpoena to get equipment and, and ballots from Milwaukee and Green Bay as part of this investigation. Now, the, the counties, the areas say that they're not going to abide by this subpoena, but nevertheless, the conversation itself just indicates that 2022 continues to be the focal point right now in sort of like these activist bases and, and sort of these activist areas of the party. So right now you have a lot of uh, Republicans in Wisconsin who really want to pivot to 2022 and, and to really focused on the midterm elections, but they have a base and they have a lot of people in their party who, who don't want to move on quite yet, you know, and who want to kind of continue battling over 2020. And so it's this push and pull that has not been resolved right now in, in Wisconsin. Uh, you know, you have sort of these investigations that are going on right now that are trying to placate the, the people who think that 2020 was stolen but but ultimately, I think they're seeing kind of through these efforts. And 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 so to me, I, I think how that get, ends up getting resolved, if at all, within the Republican Party is one of the more interesting points as we sort of think about the politics of each party going into the midterm election. Yes. Well, um, Dr. Shagosky, that has been so fascinating on all these topics, and, and we still – have so much we didn't even cover, so we want to have you back sometime <laughs> in the future, uh, be at the end of this year, early 2022 itself, and see how these races progress. But before we let you go, um, tell our listeners how they could um, read you on social media. I don't know. You might be live streaming your uh, lessons there at the college. Uh, tell, tell the folks how they can get more of you. <laughs> Please follow. Yeah, you can follow me on, on Twitter. I post, I, I'm a... I'm sort of a regular contributor on Wisconsin politics in the in the local papers here and in the local radio and in local TV and I I try to post all that on Twitter so uh, I, I think you know just and, and I have a funny last name so I'm not going to try to spell it and have people remember it uh, so just go to the show's Twitter page and you'll find my you'll find my link there so. Uh, so please follow me on Twitter, and I'll uh, and I do my best to keep everyone updated on Wisconsin politics. Excellent. We'll keep following you in the meantime. Thanks so much for having me. Thank Always you. a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Very much. Same here. All right. Well, that was such great information on Wisconsin and Catherine. I tell you what, if I'm not mistaken, on the Labasselin Hall we did a few weeks ago in Wisconsin, all three of us bought. Mandela Barnes and Sarah Godlowski, uh, and and so it sounds like we made the right two choices, correct? That's right. Or Sarah Godlowski, I, I got that that name. Uh, but so so we 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 kind of identified the first two. But yeah, we're gonna have to continue to uh, watch that state. Um, we didn't even get in the congressional races. Uh, you know, some of that'll be redistricting. But Ron Kind um, said he wasn't gonna run, so. Um, the Badger State is definitely one to watch. Well, um, you know, very interesting show uh, next week. Uh, um, we'll have another one on Sunday, and hopefully this will be the return of Tim Shiflett after this unfortunate two-week hiatus. But until then, been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody.
we are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution.